the final paper before we have our general discussion is on the Wright Brothers, the United Kingdom connection. And to give this paper, we have Gordon Bruce, who has served as a company secretary of Short Brothers Limited and uh, has also been a company secretary of Marshall of Cambridge. Uh, for a very long time, he's been interested in the uh, contacts between the Wrights and the Short Brothers, and indeed he's researched in considerable depth uh, the relationships of the Wrights with the UK, including indeed the, the older ancestry of the Wrights in this country, and you'll find that set out as a as a postscript to his written paper. So we now have Gordon Bruce. Thank you. Uh, Chairman, I'm grateful for the Society's invitation to take part in this centenary conference and to deliver the closing paper, The Wright Brothers, The United Kingdom Connection. Now, to add to what Frank has said. Uh, when we were gathering for coffee this morning, a delegate came up to me, peered at my name badge, and said, were you an aeronautical engineer? And with total honesty, I replied, no, but I was a dedicated bureaucrat. Now, that's my introductory joke, so please make the best of it. <laughs> now, Wilbur and Orville Wright were proud of their English ancestry. The appendix to my published paper shows that the Wrights were a family of consequence in England even before Samuel Wright emigrated to Massachusetts Colony in the 1630s. In fact, there is an area of Essex called Wright's Bridge which is named after, or as the Americans would say, named for, a direct ancestor of the Brothers Wright. Now, in May 1899, Samuel's descendant Wilbur already knew the name of Sir George Cayley when he asked the Smithsonian Institution for that famous aeronautical book list. The Smithsonian's book list and one supplied by the United States pioneer Octave Chanute introduced Wilbur to the work of United Kingdom researchers, many of them members of this society, in the century after Cayley inscribed his disc. Let me introduce Chanute and the English researcher Patrick Alexander, who together kept this society informed of the Wright brothers' early work. I usually think of them as the great communicators. But for a mishap in travel arrangements, Alexander would have witnessed the first powered flights at Kitty Hawk in December 1903. Next best was Orville's letter, dated 6 January 1904, to the Society, which, as we've heard, the journal published in April 1904. 
Nine months before the powered flights at Kitty Hawk, the Wrights applied for a United States patent on the system of control about three axes that they had evolved on their 192 glider. Even though the application for the equivalent United Kingdom patent was made a year later, the UK patent was granted in 1904, a good two years before that in the United States. In the Wright's business plan, their main market was seen as sales to governments. And by the way, it's a subtext in my paper that apart from being brilliant engineers, the Wrights were also businessmen. Now, the problem of that strategy of selling to governments lay in the patents legislation of the principal industrialized nations, the United States, the UK, France, and Germany, that allowed a government to make compulsory use for national defense of any patent it had granted. Remuneration to the patent holder then became a secondary consideration. The Wright's response to this problem was to decide not to give a demonstration of the practical working of their patent until a government had signed a conditional contract. Everyone who met the Wrights reported on their honesty, and the brothers believed that this obvious probity would convince a government contracts officer that it would be reasonable to sign such a contract. The British Army entered this commercial landscape in October 1904 when Colonel John Capper, uh, he's there shown as a general officer, by the way, uh, Colonel John Capper of the Royal Engineers, visited the Wrights at Dayton, armed with a letter of introduction from Alexander the Communicator. Capper was received with courtesy, and as we've heard, he was shown the Wright's photographs and their engine, but not their aircraft. Capper was then commander of the Army's balloon sections, based at the balloon factory Aldershot, which was then commanded by Colonel James Templer on the left of screen, and Samuel Cody, then a United States citizen, joined later as instructor in kiting. Capper advised the Wrights on how best to make an offer to the UK government, and that offer was made in March 1905, but it founded on the Wrights' refusal to give a flying demonstration before signature of contract. So difficult were relations that in January 1906, Capper advised his masters that the balloon factory must build its own aeroplanes. Accordingly, by 1907, the balloon factory, now located at Farnborough and commanded by Capper, following Templar's retirement, was backing two horses, first Lieutenant John Dunn's inherently stable designs, and second, Cody's right-inspired British Army number one. 
Now, not part of my printed paper, but something that was triggered by remarks of, of Dick Hallions, where was Kappa coming from? Was he a dirty dog who picked up information from the rights and then went off to do his own thing? After deep thought, I think not. I think it's all down to British Army rivalry between the Royal Engineers and the Royal Artillery. The background to this is that we had just finished the Boer War, where the Army had been ill-prepared and had received many nasty surprises. For example, the Army needed a new rifle, which was a good one, which served until the middle 1950s with some modifications. But of the two technical corps, the Royal Artillery and the Royal Engineers, the Royal Artillery had a disappointing war. They were consistently outgunned by Boer artillery, and they were using German equipment. So after the war, the Royal Artillery bought German guns for its standard equipment until British-designed artillery could be introduced later that decade, well in time for 1914. On the other hand, the Royal Engineers had a superb war. If you wanted bridging, you got it. If you wanted railways built and operating, you got it. If you wanted uh, heavy steam road transport, you got it. If you wanted signalling, you got it. And most of all, the Royal Engineers' balloon sections were quite superb. In fact, the Boers said that the thing they hated about the, the war was the man in the balloon, because he could always see what they were doing. So there was this esprit de corps, the rivalry. The sappers were saying that if you, the gunners, had to go to Germany for your equipment for the modern era, we in the Royal Engineers are going to do it ourselves without foreign contribution. Now also, uh, going into Dick Hallion's remarks, that uh, there are some super aviation articles in the Royal Artillery Journal. This because with the increasing range of guns and the need to fire over crests, that is called indirect fire, where the guns cannot see the target, you need some form of forward observation. And the artillery saw this in the aeroplane. And those super articles were by Colonel, later Brigadier, F.G. Stone in the Royal Artillery Journal. Now, of the Dunn design and the Cody design, on 16th of October 1908, the Cody design was the first to fly at Farnborough. In the interim, the Wrights made other offers to the British government, all founded variously on the Wrights' refusal to give a flying de demonstration, or on the balloon factory's policy of going it alone, or on the view of the Secretary of State for War, Mr. R.B. Haldane on the left, uh, the other two belong to the longer version of this talk, uh, and Haldane thought that the Wrights were clever empiricists, not scientists. And in fact, in 1907, Haldane had been instrumental 
in turning down another of the rights offers. However, when faced with the success of Wilbur Wright's flying demonstrations in France from August 1908 onward, and also by the success of British Army No. 1, the Committee of Imperial Defence established a committee under Lord Isher to consider the military aeroplane. Lord Isher took evidence from the great and the good, including Major BFS Baden-Powell, former, former president of this society, and the Honourable C.S. Rolls, that's Rolls of Rolls-Royce, and also a member of this society, both of whom had flown as passenger with Wilbur in France. And at times, Rolls' evidence to Lord Isher's committee was little more than a sales pitch for the right aeroplane. Haldane steered Lord Isher's committee to a decision to cancel the Dunn and Cody projects at Farnborough on the grounds that, in his understanding, the theoretical basis of flight was insufficiently understood and that a committee of eminent scientists should conduct basic research preparatory to a new start. Haldane could clearly not have known of the volumes of research data accumulated by the Wrights. However, Lord Isha's committee decided to accept an offer from Charlie Rolls to place a Wright aeroplane at the government's disposal for trials. So how was it that Charlie Rolls had a right at his disposal? Now, although the rights had discounted the civilian market, this did not end the civilian's interest in the rights. This society's journal and the aeronautical columns of the motoring press kept United Kingdom enthusiasts informed of the brothers' activities, although support in the, in the press did waver during the Wright's self-imposed no-flying interval between October 1905 and May 1908. It was during this interval that Charlie Rolls was introduced to the Wright's by Alexander the Communicator while he was in New York for a motor show. After interviewing eyewitnesses of Wright flights, Rolls became a wholehearted supporter, and by November 1907, he was inquiring if the United Kingdom patent was for sale. The rights, however, still had sale to governments in mind. Rolls stayed in touch with Wilbur when he came to France in connection with the Lazar Vela syndicate. And when Wilbur started his flying demonstrations near Le Mans in 1908, he became the second Englishman to fly as a passenger in a Wright aeroplane. Priority went to Griffith Brewer, a patent agent by profession, of whom I shall say more later. By September 1908, Rolls had placed an unconditional order with Wilbur 
for a machine to be built on the forthcoming French production lines, and this was the right aeroplane offered by Rolls to Lord Isha's committee. Wilbur Wright received several proposals from United Kingdom entrepreneur to buy the Wright patent and set up a production line in the UK. Charlie Rolls was interested, but the board of Rolls-Royce refused to back him. As 1908 gave way to 1909, a perilous situation was developing for the rights under United Kingdom patent law. I've already said that the Crown had the undisputed right to use any UK patent for the purposes of national defence. Additionally, any interested party could apply for the right for, for the grant of a compulsory license if the patent was not being worked adequately to meet the market. However, an entirely new hazard had been introduced by the 1907 Patents Act, which provided that if a patent was being worked mainly outside the United Kingdom, then any interested party could apply for the patent to be cancelled. So the Wright's United Kingdom patent was therefore at risk of cancellation as soon as production contracts were placed in France in late 1908 under the French patent. There is no doubt in my mind that Wilbur and Orville Wright were advised on the intricacies of United Kingdom patent law by Griffith Brewer, the patent agent, later president of this society, who was the first Englishman to fly with Wilbur in France. In a few minutes, I shall detail the when, where, and how of this photograph. Uh, but here are Charlie Rose and John Theodore Cuthbert Moore Brabazon. Uh, there's a late-life portrait of Brewer on the staircase and a late-life portrait of Moore Brabazon in the members' lounge. Uh, Moore Brabazon was, of course, later Lord Brabazon of Tara and a Minister of Aircraft Production in the Second World War. I should add that in 1907, Moore Brabazon saw French trials of their versions of the Wright's gliders. He then designed his own version, which was built for him by Eustace and Oswald Short. Eustace and Oswald were then balloon builders and aeronauts to the Aero Club. Now, the Moore Brabazon glider was a failure, but gallantly, uh, Brab exonerated the Short brothers from all blame for the fiasco. Now, one of the United Kingdom syndicates bidding for the right patent was based on the Aero Club and was headed by Lord Royston, Lord Royston and his friends, as Wilbur called them. In December 1908, this syndicate went to Wilbur's flying ground in France, taking with them 
Eustace Short as engineer. Most of the group, including Eustace, flew with Wilbur. Eustace, however, realized that his engineering was not up to the right standards, so Eustace and Oswald therefore invited their elder brother, Horace, to join them in a new aeronautical engineering partnership. Horace agreed and left his employment with Sir Charles Parsons in late December 1908 to set up Short Brothers at Battersea. Meanwhile, Wilbur was not prepared to make a decision on the future of the UK patent until Orville joined him in January 1909 at the new flying ground at Pau in the south of France. And then Brewer fell ill, so that it was not until mid-February, with Charlie Rowles as chauffeur, that he could join the Wrights at Pau for a final decision. Within days of Brewer's arrival, the Wrights had decided to abandon talks with the syndicates and to have a batch of aircraft built in the UK by a contractor, thus satisfying the 1907 Patents Act. Asked who should be the contractor, Brewer unhesitatingly recommended the Short Brothers, for he knew of their skill and care in balloon manufacture. They were planning to build an aeroplane factory at the Aero Club's flying ground on the Isle of Sheppey, and Brewer also would have known that they were already building an aeroplane of Horace's design for Frank McLean, a great patriot, but that's part of another story. The Wrights accepted Brewer's advice, and in quick succession... Eustace went out to Poe to discuss terms of business, followed by Horace, who made sketches from the solid of Wilbur's aircraft, preparatory to reverse engineering manufacturing drawings. And this is a page from Horace's Poe sketchbook showing the wings, engine, and twin propellers. Uh, this book, by the way, is now in the Society's possession. The contract with the Short Brothers was placed in March. The handwriting, by the way, is Oswald's. So here we have March, Wright Brothers, six aeroplanes, plans and details. And when Shorts were selling aircraft in the US of A, the throwaway line was, of course, we are the guys who sold the Wright brothers some airplanes. And uh, when Schwartz designed their right tie in 1978 for the 75th anniversary, I insisted that they put a tag on the back with Oswald's handwriting, March, Wright brothers, six aeroplanes, plans and details. And this, of course, was the giveaway to prospective customers and just to remind them. Uh, you can also see here the order placed in January by Frank McLean. Uh, there's also 
short number two, ordered by Moore Brabazon. And down here is the scale right aircraft, ordered by Charlie Rowles so that he could learn to fly. Uh, by the way, um, McLean's short number one was not a success, but Moore Brabazon's short number two flew successfully before any of the short rights. And here, George VI, Rex Imperator, uh, signed the order book in the margin during his visit to Short's factory at Rochester in March 1939. When the Wright brothers and sister Catherine left Poe for the United States, they staged through London where they were presented with this society's first gold medal. A uh, bit blurry, but Wilbur is standing. On his left is the president, E.P. Frost. Here is Orville, and this is Major BFS Baden-Powell. The brothers were also entertained by the Aero Club, who organized a lunch and then a banquet, and also a visit to the club's flying ground on the Isle of Sheppey, where they inspected Short's new factory and also work in progress on the six rights. And the group photograph that you saw earlier was taken at the Aero Club's clubhouse on 4th of May 1909 during this visit. Roll's short right glider, ordered on the rights advice during this visit, was delivered to him on the 26th of July 1909 and I'm sure I shall be reminded from the front row that that was the day after Monsieur Blériot flew the channel. And this was the first Wright aircraft to fly in the United Kingdom. Uh, by the way, it was flown from East Church Hill, flown from a rail, and launched by two beefy characters running at the wingtips. And by October... Rolls had completed his glider trials and was ready for powered flight. This represents a short right, nowadays known as a right model A. It's a tail-first layout, span 41 foot, loaded weight 1,200 pounds, 35 horsepower right engine with chain drive to twin-handed propellers. 50 miles an hour, duration over two hours. The engine was built in France to the Wright's design. The structural spruce came from North America. The propeller drive chains came from the United States. And the propeller drive shafts came from Krupp. So it was truly international sourcing for the materials. List price from the Wright's to their customers, all prominent members of the Aero Club, was £1,000. Shorts were paid £200 per aircraft, but the rights gave the, gave the engines as free issue, and there is good evidence that the materials were also free issue. Initially, launch was by pylon and rail, and later, wheeled undercarriages were fitted. 
Rolls took delivery of short right number one on the 1st of October 1909. He also took number six in March 1910. Alec Ogilvy took number two. Frank McLean, number three. Morris Edgerton, number four. And Percy Grace, number five. Rolls won a number of Aero Club prizes on short right number one, but by 17 December 1909, that is the sixth anniversary, he had achieved a flight of seven miles. In 1910, Rolls and other pilots achieved some successes with short rights at flying meetings at Wolverhampton, Bournemouth and Lanark, but by 1911, the design was effectively obsolete. A few months before his death in July 1910, Rolls sold short right number one to the war office. You notice it was short right rather than French-built aircraft uh, in accordance with the arrangement made with the Committee of Imperial Defense. And... Rolls is here in the scarf and cap going through what the army presumably called naming of parts. Uh, and this was the first contractor-built aircraft supplied to the British Armed Forces. Uh, there is no evidence that short right number one was ever flown by the army. The aircraft eventually warped and was written off. Most other short rights appear to have been scrapped on the outbreak of the First World War after various changes of ownership. But one of Alec Ogilvy's, probably short right number six, survived, much modified, to be flown as His Majesty's Naval Aircraft number 1373. So one of the six to the Army and one to the Royal Navy although both second-hand. Various short-right components survived to become museum deposits. Details are in the printed paper. The printed paper also includes details of Wright aircraft imported into this country, including the French-built Wright on which Rolls was killed at Bournemouth on the 12th of July, 1910. Shorts had been prepared to build later Wright designs, but the Farman summer layout introduced to the Aero Club by Rolls early in 1910 proved to be a more marketable product. However, Horace did use the Wright system of chain-driven propellers for two of his twin-engined aircraft in about 1912. As we heard earlier, in 1909, Wilbur and Orville commenced litigation against infringers of their patents in the United States and continental Europe. Notice, not the United Kingdom. As Phil Jarrett said, this diverted their attention from aircraft design and the strain of litigation so weakened Wilbur's constitution that he succumbed to typhoid fever in May 1912. This society immediately instituted 
the Wilbur Wright Memorial Lecture and organization of the first lecture in 1913 fell onto Brewer's capable shoulders. As we all know, the annual Wright Lecture continues to be an essential feature of this society's life. And please read in the printed paper Moore Brabazon's defiant remarks on the lecture in the dark days of May 1940. The Wright brothers did not initiate patents litigation in this country when they started their actions in the United States, France, and Germany. In 1913, however, Brewer became convinced that the Royal Aircraft Factory's BE-2 series infringed the Wright patents. With Orville's agreement, Brewer incorporated the British Wright Company and Orville became 50% shareholder in exchange for the UK patents. The British Wright Company then sued the British government for compensation for crown user of the Wright patents. As set out in the printed paper, an entirely satisfactory settlement was reached in which the Treasury solicitor paid generous tribute to the services rendered to the science of aviation by the Wrights and therefore to the early days of the Royal Flying Corps. Haldane was no longer Secretary of State for Defence, so he would not have been amused by the Treasury Solicitor's remarks. In 1916, Orville decided not to renew the United Kingdom Master Patent on its expiry in 1917. This amounted to a gift of commercial assets to the UK in time of war in what Lord Northcliffe called a noble act, for the United States were then still neutral. But the Wright family were not neutral. The Wright patents, this time the United States patents, gave rise to the next important episode in the Wright connection with the United Kingdom. It became necessary for Glenn Curtis, a defendant in the United States patent action, to prove that the Wright Flyer was not the first powered aeroplane capable of flight in 1903, and that the honor rightly belonged to Professor Langley's aerodrome. The Smithsonian Institution then allowed Curtis to remove the Langley aircraft from the museum, modify it substantially, fly it, and then restore it to its original condition before returning it to the museum where it was displayed with inaccurate labels. Fortunately, the entire fraudulent episode was seen and chronicled by Brewer, who set out the facts in a letter to the New York Times in June 1914 and, in fuller detail, in a lecture to this society in October 1921. When Orville was asked to display the Kitty Hawk flyer at the Smithsonian, he refused to have it housed under the same roof 
as the Langley Aerodrome and its fraudulent labels. Orville did, however, accept an offer from the Science Museum London to give the flyer an honored home. The flyer arrived in London in February 1928 and in December that year hung over this society's dinner at the Science Museum to mark the 25th anniversary. Apart from periods in bomb-proof storage, the flyer remained on display at the Science Museum until 1948, when, after a change of heart by the Smithsonian and an intervention by President Roosevelt, the flyer was returned to the United States for display at the Smithsonian, where it was unveiled on 17th of December 1948, the 45th anniversary. Neither Orville nor Brewer lived to see these historic events. Orville died in January 1948 and Brewer two months later. Moore Brabazon always said that the Wright brothers had a soft spot in their hearts for the Royal Aeronautical Society. That friendship was reciprocated. Let me quote the words of Moore Brabazon when he gave the 30th Wright Memorial Lecture in 1942 with Brewer in the chair. Those of us who remember the early efforts will always treasure the recollection of the two brothers Wright. They were not Mr. Know-alls. They were bashful, retiring, nervous almost, but yet with strong, independent natures. It was not easy to get to know them. No sensation monger or lion hunter got very far. But if you were really interested and had faith, slowly they would open up to you people who, the more you got to know, the more you had to love. There never could be anything mean about them. They were, and remained, simple students and pure of heart. Thank you very much, Gordon. That was a, a very nicely composed lecture and a very suitable ending. Let us now invite questions or comments. Yes, sir. My name is Peter Jennings. I'm an affiliate of this society and I write for the Times newspaper. I thought it was an immensely interesting and stimulating day and thank you for organizing it, sir. My, my point first is that I think this 100th anniversary is a well-kept secret in the United Kingdom. I don't think it's getting anything like the coverage or general recognition that it deserves. And I would like the panel, perhaps one or two of them, to make an observation about my comment on that. But more specifically, my question, and perhaps to the president of this society, is this. 
A postage stamp would have been a great way to commemorate this event, and many countries throughout the world are issuing postage stamps. The United States Postal Service is issuing a stamp on the 22nd of May showing the right flyer. Did the society, in fact, petition Royal Mail, ask Royal Mail some years ago if they would consider issuing a stamp, and are they disappointed that it's not being commemorated on a postage stamp, which is a lasting worldwide memorial of something like this? And finally, what is the society going to do? And I'm more than willing to help in, if in any little way I'm able, to get this anniversary more generally known. Well, thank you for that. I think... Uh, our president, having departed, um, the responsibility in this does come upon Sir Peter Norris to say a word or two if he cares to do so. Although I'm sure it's, uh, I'm sure these comments are uh, le uh, don't find him particularly prepared. But Peter, if you would like to say something, do. Well, thank you for the fast ball. Um, <laughs> the answer to the postage stamp, I can't give you a specific answer. Uh, I do know that in another forum we were looked for Cayley to be recognised by means of a postage stamp and that was turned down and that was a sort of very British contribution. Uh, but uh, Ian Paul might have, who was an earlier president, might know something about what went on um, a year or two ago. As far as the activities to celebrate 2003 are concerned, there is a lot of information about, and the Royal Aeronautical Society is acting as the coordinator of the activities of very many institutions and organizations that are getting involved in a variety uh, of activities this year. I can certainly furnish you separately uh, with some information about that, and there's a very effective website being developed that already identifies a number of things in particular. Um, each branch in the society is holding an event of some description. The foundation sponsor details for the scholarship fund feature upstairs in the Argyle room with a major contribution from those five companies, followed on by other sponsors to create a scholarship fund for the promotion of aviation to help develop the next generation of aviation pioneers. Um, and we have ho high hopes of getting a substantial amount of money during this year through a variety of means uh, for that purpose, without being prescriptive about uh, uh, how the, the, um, the trust's trustees in later years might apply that money for the, the greater good of aeronautics in the round. There is, in, on June the 29th at Old Warden, a centennial event being held in conjunction with Biggleswade Old Warden Shuttleworth Connection, which is going to be, I think, a fantastic, uh, typically British, uh, flying, gentle, Zephyr-like, we hope, afternoon. Uh, the major event that the Society will then hold is on the 17th of December itself in the Science Museum, the centennial uh, dinner to commemorate uh, the Orville and Wilbur Wright. All four terrestrial TV programs are featuring major events associated with the centennial during the course uh, of the year. And I could go on. I haven't actually got at the tip of my fingers all the details of those, but uh, uh, there's a flyer available, and if it's not up there, when you go out, I'll nip out ahead and try and grab a handful so you can take them away with you.
Uh, Mike Berard, uh, just one question from the helicopter world. I gather there's a plaque at the Smithsonian which says uh, one of the rights saying that, like all aviators, they tried helicopters first, but gave them up as a bad job. Is there any evidence of um, a helicopter design from the Wright, from the Wright brothers? Not to my knowledge. I mean, the, the only helicopters that they did when they received the uh, the small uh, Peno helicopter rubber band rubber band model in 1878, uh, they built models of that increasingly larger size and experimented with those. But as far as any serious uh, research for building a, a vertical flight capable aircraft, uh, I don't know of any evidence of that. I don't know if any others have seen that. I agree with Peter on the rights. I haven't seen any connection there really where the rights look at the uh, helicopter in any great detail, but I would uh, throw out something, and that is uh, it's very interesting to look at the number of pioneers whose interest in flight first started with the helicopter, uh, and then they moved on to something else, and then in some cases came back to it. But if we go into uh, a view even beyond this, if we take a look at the helicopter as an early flight device uh, back in the Middle Ages, uh, we see the drawstring helicopter uh, appear as an element even in uh, paintings uh, in that time period, in church art. And we have it in woodcuts as well. And then if you uh, fast forward and you take a look at uh, Lanoy and Bienvenue uh, toward the end of the 18th century and the influence that that has on Cayley, and then the influence that the Lanoy Bienvenue design and Cayley's adaptation of it has upon Penau and then the transfer of that to the rights, uh, there's a story here that's really worth telling because as a, as a popularizing device to get people interested in aviation, the little toy helicopter uh, played a pretty important role. Well, one, just one comment from a uh, recently qualified helicopter pilot. I'm often asked what's it like to hover and I've often said before listening to your presentations, it's a bit like riding a bike. It's impossible until we can do it. So I was pleased to hear the comment of about unstable machines. <laughs> Thank you. There are two questions towards the back. Over in the corner first. Thank you. Thank you. David Tipper from the Hatfield branch, uh, but now a neighbor of uh, Henson Stringfellow. What has come across to me listening to the various speakers is the um, comprehensiveness of the rights uh, development program. And I feel that this is probably their, their true greatness and um, I think through that, they were able to manufacture luck. For instance, um, doing your first flights in highly turbulent conditions is really something that, if you hadn't planned meticulously, um, would almost certainly lead to failure because you would have compounding problems and you would never find your way through them. That, their weakness seems to have been in their marketing and the failure to form a second objective, having succeeded in their first. Thank you very much. Actually, that, that does ring a bell with my own feeling. This business of uh, the, uh, the rights expending a great deal of energy in the uh, second half of the first decade of the 20th century on defending their legal rights. Um, of course, they... They had every right to do that, and uh, Philip Jarrett put, put it very strongly that they really, they really felt they had to do that. But of course, I think it's fair to say that one of the experiences in industry and innovation work generally is that uh, if you 
find yourself in a good leading position, then the thing to do is to keep on developing it. Because if you stop, even if you've got legal rights, if you stop, then somebody else may well come past you, even if they can't actually break your patents. They'll continue development knowing what you've done. And I wonder whether our colleagues from America might like to comment on this. I would suggest that it was unfortunate that the rights did expend their energies in this way and didn't press on. For example, they never, I think, never even schemed a monoplane, let alone built one. Um, how do you feel, gentlemen, uh, about uh, what would have happened if the rights had pushed on? Well, I, people have been kind of uh, talking about this issue a little bit during the day, and um, I think one of the things that we're overlooking is getting back to who the Wright brothers were and what their outlook on the world was and what their personalities were. You know, why did they pursue the patents so vigorously? Uh, why didn't they uh, pursue their business interests more vigorously? Well, those kinds of questions. And it had to do largely with the fact that that was not their interest. What their interest was was scientific research and experimentation. They always looked back upon the happiest moments of their lives, those five years between 1900 and 1905 when they were uh, puzzling out the problems, designing, going to Kitty Hawk. Uh, that was really what they were about. And they always had planned to uh, go back to research. One of the speakers talked about, well, it was a little puzzling. Why Why did they abandon their uh, wind tunnel experiments uh, after the winter of 1901, uh, They'd always, the reason they stopped at that point was that they wanted to develop the other aspects of the airplane uh, so they would have the 1902 glide for the 1902 flying season. They went back to uh, the wind tunnel briefly for developing parts for the 1903 airplane, wing struts and so forth. But they had always planned to go back to a life of scientific research, experimenting, and uh, the, the pace of activity with getting the airplanes prepared and sold in 1908-1909, and the formation of the company in 1910, and then Wilbur's death in 1912 kind of precluded that. But that was very distasteful activity for them. They, they were not people that enjoyed that kind of thing. So I don't think it was a question of they didn't have the will or they didn't have the interest. It just wasn't what they were about. I see. I'm, I'll, I must I'll admit I'm slightly surprised to I'll hear you say some ideas in this. Uh, now, now uh, I think there's elements of Greek tragedy about the rights. Uh, the rights are extraordinary individuals, and uh, they knew more about flying than any of their predecessors and more about flying than most of their successes, quite frankly. They performed brilliantly in going from theory to practice to getting off that first flight. And they were very courageous individuals and very bold. If you think of taking off in the teeth of a 27-mile-an-hour wind in your first flight, that's pretty impressive when you think about it, especially when you're flying an F-16. Because this airplane was unstable in all three axes, and the pilot was the integrator. He was the, the, he was the flight control computer, you know, trying to get this whole thing going. I think the problem uh, with the rights is that after 1905, they've really shot their technical bolt. Uh, they really don't have a very clear idea in their own mind of where to go in aviation beyond that point. They're trapped in a way by the configuration they've developed. They've developed a completely unstable configuration, a canard configuration. It has some real challenging problems to it. It's a configuration that inspires a lot of other people to fly. But you find that when people get hold of that configuration, very quickly they start to move beyond it. 
And then the rights, and, and it's very understandable because the rights had defensible patents, and the rights had done a tremendous amount of work. The rights got caught up in this patent dispute, most prominently with Glenn Curtis, but with, it seems, half the Western world. And what comes out of that is something that doesn't so much affect foreign aeronautics, but it definitely affects American aeronautics. People start to shy away from entering the field, and it becomes a very dominant issue in the United States. Now, there were other reasons why American aviation fell behind that of Europe uh, as well. There was a very uh, great lack of official support for it, both from the political community and from the military community and at, at the very highest levels of the government, from the executive community as well. But if we take a look at the rights, you know, one reason why the rights perhaps didn't invest in much more wind tunnel technology is that if you take a look at a drawing of a Wright airplane in the 1914 time period, and you take a look at the wing, it's basically not really that much uh, changed from the time period of, say, 1905. In fact, if you look at their 1914 uh, airplanes in that time period, you find that there's this direct visual connection to the airplanes of Kitty Hawk and through 1905. Uh, I am struck by the fact that uh, when you had Vedrine come to the United States and win the Gordon Bennett race in the Depotazan monocoque, the right so-called speed scout of the day had a top-end speed of only about two-thirds of what he was dealing with. Now, if we are to say that the rights came to Europe in August 1908, as the popular myth goes, and taught the Europeans to fly, then you have to ask an, or you have to answer another question. And the other question is, why were the, the Europeans such fast learners? Because in July 1909, they're already starting to go to that next generation of aircraft really well beyond the rights. If you look at it in detail, you find really that the rights taught the Europeans to fly better, but they did not teach the Europeans to fly. The Europeans were already flying very nicely, thank you very much, and were moving down that road on their own. And that the divergence between European aeronautics, certainly by the time of REMS after the Channel flight, the divergence between European aeronautics and American aeronautics at that time was already profound. And that's why I made the comment in my speech that by the time of the First World War, you find that our people in the United States are flying European products. In 19, there was an element of technological complacency in the rights. Uh, you have a statement by Wilbur uh, in 1906 to the effect that he doesn't believe that anybody will have a machine of the least practical significance for another five years. In five years, the airplane went to war when Italy took an air expeditionary force to Tripoli made up largely of French and German airplanes. The aviation field was changing very, very dramatically. And in this context, the right patent suits are very much like those individuals fighting Microsoft who were trying to retain control of a perishable aging technology and desperately try to control that through legal action, which earns them some sympathy because in many ways their actions are justified, but the field's changing so rapidly that it's moving very much beyond them. They knew in short how to make the first airplane. They really didn't know how to make the second. Thank you very much. Ian, you wanted to say something. That's exactly why I called them concept demonstrators, that, that they showed everybody that it could be done, and then the heavies moved in. I mean, the uh, Lord Rayleigh, who I discussed in, in the context of criticizing Langley, 
Um, what year was it, John? 1905? Rayleigh became chairman of the Aeronautical Research Committee? 1909. Okay. Yeah. Well, what happened was that the scientific community then converged on this, and all these uh, theories which hitherto had been really uh, not too much use were refined and developed to the point where they really were useful, and now you had a, a very big movement developing which no individual or even no single company could ever stay abreast of. In fact, none of the pioneers really ever um, made a, a significant uh, business out of aviation. They all had their, had their moment, and then they were overtaken. That's the point. Thank you very much. Uh, there was a question over in this base somewhere. I was unconscious that I didn't um, call upon you earlier. Uh, Duncan Simpson retired. It might be of interest that the right biplane, which has been hanging in the Science Museum for the last 55 years, was built by the de Havilland Technical School in 1945 to 1948. Uh, it was commissioned by the Science Museum by de Havilland's, and uh, it was handed over by Sir Geoffrey de Havilland in 1948, when the original went back to America. Uh, I know this because I took part in the building of this airplane as an apprentice, and I was also present at the handover. And it is my information that the Wright brothers stipulated that the, their own aircraft was not to go back to America First of all, until they died, and secondly, until an exact replica was placed in the Science Museum at Kensington. And the work was carried out with great care, and I can tell you that even the string that ties the instruments to the interplane struts is the same type of string with the same knots. Thank you very much for that contribution, Duncan. I'm very pleased that uh, you brought that in because I think it's a very suitable item of fact uh, that we should recognize today and um, uh, to bear in mind when we look at that aircraft in the museum. It was a great job done by the de Havilland apprentices and organization at that time. Anything further? Peter Stokes, uh, a member, um, do we not agree that possibly the third men in these combinations are really underreported? As far as Charles Taylor is concerned, we've heard little of him. Uh, Manley and Bowser, of course, um, the, they seem simply to be treated as industrious mechanics, whereas I certainly think in the case of both obviously Manley and Taylor, uh, that theirs was a very strong contribution. And then there's just this element of personal interest. Um, did these engine experts, in fact, speak? Have we some opinions on this aspect? Well, thank you for that. Um, as an ex-engine man myself, I, I have to say that uh, um, perhaps I'm partly responsible heading this committee for not proposing that we should have a, an engines lecture. But it seemed to me that uh, the work on engines was well recognized by the pioneers. 
And um, I think there is information available on it. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that the speakers today have made due acknowledgement, actually, of the importance of the engine. It's appeared in those four vital uh, items in the lists. But uh, let me invite our speakers to say anything. I think uh, Charlie Taylor, I think the comment's well-founded. Well I think Charlie Taylor's work in contributing to the design of the Wrights uh, engine uh, is, is very important. There is a book on it that's come out uh, by a man named H.R. Dufour, uh, and uh, it's, it's quite reliable, and it's a start to getting him uh, some very serious recognition. And certainly I think uh, the Manly Balls uh, connection with engine development needs to be covered as well. The whole field of early engine development needs to be looked at. I'll just say one more word about Charlie Taylor. Um, the Wright brothers did clearly recognize his contribution. Taylor went on to do a lot of other things. He was also the mechanic uh, for the first transcontinental United States flight with the Wright EX Vin Fizz in 1911. Uh, he worked uh, uh, in the 30s and 40s at uh, North American Aviation and, in fact, uh, was involved with when the Wright brothers a home and bicycle shop were purchased by Henry Ford and moved to a museum in, in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. He was brought in to do the uh, consulting on that. So he had a long association with aviation as well as the history of the rights. And uh, Orville had always uh, uh, thought of him fondly and uh, continued to send him a, a, an annual uh, financial annuity to keep him going through the lean time. So uh, the rights uh, uh, always... Uh, uh, or at least Wilbur, uh, Orville, through his long life, did always recognize the contribution of, uh, of Charlie Taylor. Their sister Catherine didn't care for him because he smoked c stinky cigars, and she hated his stinky cigars. So <laughs> his sister Catherine wasn't particularly fond of him, but, uh, but the Wrights Thank certainly you. recognized his important contribution. Thank you very much. I think uh, we're down to the last, very last question, I think. The one over... Oh, just, just the Science Museum again. Um, just to flesh out the, uh, the situation with the return of the flyer, um, Orville did actually request its return. It was on a renewable five-year loan period. Um, although his estate actually arranged it, um, Orville did request it and obviously didn't know he was not going to be there to see it return. Um, and so I won't go on more with that. But the point I was going to make was that uh, in the early days, um, the Wrights uh, claimed to have thought about the implications of designing the aeroplane and the worry that it would become a weapon. Um, you know, they didn't actually know they'd solved the problem, but they said they wanted to contribute. They then solved the problem, um, and when interviewed um, in later years, said that they'd uh, uh, feared, th thought it would actually become the world's deterrent, in that any army in possession of aerial force wouldn't dare use it, um, rather as we had the Cold War later on. Um, obviously, it was used. Um, they had to go to government to make sales. Um, they were really the only customers around. They hadn't created the private pilot because there wasn't anything to fly. Um, so in later life, did they ever reflect? Because obviously uh, um, Orville lived through two world wars where aerial power were used. Um, did he ever say anything about regret or uh, comment on the way in which the world used his invention? Yes, he had a, a particular comment on that when asked uh, in the late 1940s, not long before he died, and having witnessed all the destruction wrought by air power during the Second World War and is asked, you know, do you regret having contributed this to the world? And his response was he saw it much like the, the discovery of fire, that uh, it certainly uh, could uh, cause great havoc, but uh, the benefits of it certainly uh, are, are there to be seen. So he, he saw it in those terms, and that was the analogy that he used. 
Thank you. I think uh, we will have to finish now. By the way, for the recording, the questioner was Peter Davidson of the Science Museum. I'm afraid we do have to draw stumps and go home. Thank you very much for coming. I hope you've all enjoyed it. Have a safe journey home. Thank you.